Hey, good morning, everybody. Thanks again for joining us. We are glad to dive into God's word together today. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. And while you're turning, let me remind you that we are in a second week of a series now on fighting fear. Uh, And what we're aiming to do here is to sort of look at all the weapons the Bible gives us to handle fear. Ryan Uh, Keith did a great job last week of opening up the series and talking about how God's love helps us fight against fear. And so I just want to remind us then, uh, maybe you're joining us for the first time, maybe you missed last week, and I just encourage you, go back and listen to that because it's a great starter to understanding uh, the ways the Bible talks to us about fighting against fear. And so uh, having jumped into that series, I want to make sure that we all are reminded what it is that we're aiming at doing in this series and kind of the purpose of it. We're going to look at 19 different ways that the Bible talks about that we can fight against fear. And the assumption there, friends, is that all of us fight against fear. Um, You know, many of us might be feeling it as a result of COVID, but perhaps that's not you. What I would encourage you to remember and recognize that all of us at some point uh, wrestle with fear in some area. And so we're in need of comfort. We're in need of weapons to deal with it. So I thought I'd get a little, give a little illustration that might help us. I think about this all the time, not just when it comes to fear, but when it comes to a lot of issues that we need to sort of uh, take up the weapons God gives us in scripture about. So I'm gonna have some help from some of my superhero friends here. So this is not a superhero, it's a bad guy, Kylo Ren. If we can imagine for a moment that this represents fear. Now here's what I recognize that a lot of folks do. When we, when we fight against fear or perhaps against lust or, or any number of other things, often what I find is when I talk to folks that they see the enemy, they know it's an enemy, they know it's a problem. And then what they do is they say, I've got this one weapon. So Captain America is gonna be our first weapon here. I've got this weapon and I use this weapon against the enemy, the thing that is the struggle. So in this case, fear. And we keep going back to that weapon over and over again. And we find that fear keeps cropping up or whatever that, you know, that thing is that we're needing to fight against. And we kind of go, well, why isn't, I, I seem to be sort of losing to the enemy and I can't figure out why. And part of the reason I would, I would offer to you is that you're needing to take up more weapons. So the reason for that is this, is that different weapons work against different kinds of fear. So in this scenario, with fear as the, as the enemy, as the thing that we're needing to battle against, often we might take up the weapon of memorizing scripture, right? That's something we'll talk about as we go through this series. And that's a really, really good weapon. But there are other weapons that the scriptures make available to us to fight against this, and we don't take those up. And, you know, when you're fighting a battle, how do you win that battle? You win a battle, usually, often you will win if you outflank your enemy, right? If you surround your enemy. And so often one weapon is not enough. And so we've got help from other friends here. So we've got, I had to learn the names of all these, by the way, but uh, we've got Falcon, right? We've got Spider-Man who um, is yoked. He's massive. All right. So we've got him, if I can make him stand and so on and so forth. So Winter Soldier, so we're coming around. So the idea in this series, I know it's kind of a silly illustration. Hopefully your kids will recognize these names. They can tell them to you. But the idea in the series, of course, is that we're wanting to give you a lot of weapons in order to surround fear on all sides, right? So that you have available to you, not just one weapon, but many. Both because, as I said, some types of fear need to be fought with certain weapons and other reasons for fear, other types of fear are fought with different weapons. And so having a variety of weapons that the scripture offers to us is valuable. And also because fear is challenging to deal with. So the more weapons we have to take up against it, the better off we are. So that's kind of what we're aiming at in this series. So hopefully that kind of visual aid helps you a little bit. Now, let me just say there, 
that we need to answer one more question. I'm gonna put these guys away. So we need to answer one more question. And that question is this, is why is fear a problem? So, you know, even as I say that fear is a difficulty that we all face, it's commonplace. The reality is I know that some of you might be thinking to yourself, well, I deal with fear and anxiety so often that maybe I've stopped to think about it as a problem because I just accept it as something I'm gonna, I'm gonna need to live with, I'm gonna have to deal with. And that's true in the sense that fear is common, is a common human experience. And so we're all gonna wrestle with it. Not, not one of us gets out of wrestling with that. But the thing I would say is this, I don't think that what the scripture paints as the picture for us is that we are supposed to be uh, just allowing fear to take hold in our lives, but rather that when we find it rising up in our hearts, rising up in our minds, that what we're doing is actively fighting against it. And the, the ultimate reason for that is this, if I can frame this for the whole series, why is fear a problem is a question you might ask. And the reason is that fear is the enemy of God glorifying faith. That's why fear is a problem because it's the enemy of God glorifying faith. So when faith grows in our hearts, what faith does is it both glorifies God, it saves us, it secures our eternal future, it makes us grow to be like Christ, what Christians call sanctification. It fills us with hope and peace and it gives us a firm identity and it's what makes us persevere in Christ. So all those things, which are part of the sort of normal Christian life that we're supposed to be growing in, require faith. And if fear is the enemy of faith, then it prohibits or limits the way those things happen. So hopefully that makes sense. That's what I want you to get today, sort of as a, as a broad scope for the rest of this series. Why is fear a problem? Fear is a problem because it's the enemy of God glorifying faith. All right, so here's what we're gonna do. Each week, we're gonna look at three different uh, weapons that we can take up, right? Three different superheroes, if you will, to use our illustration, that we can take up to fight against faith. We're gonna look at three of those today. We looked at one last week. And the reason we looked at one is because Ryan really introduced us to the primary one, right? God's love is our primary weapon against fear. It might've been that first one, that Captain America that we put up. And then the rest kind of come around and underneath those. In fact, we'll see today that there's a companion piece to the love of God that the scriptures give us in Matthew chapter 10. So here's the three we're gonna look at today. Three weapons by which we can fight against fear. Number one, the fear of God, that we would fear God. We're gonna try to make these as practical as possible and give you sort of an understanding, well, how do I, how do, I do that? Now, keep in mind that a number of these are going to be mindsets that we have to acquire, right? Fear takes place in our mind and in our emotions and even at the level of our will. And so we might expect then that the weapons we take up to fight against it are also mental and emotional weapons, right? And weapons of the will. So these, a lot of these are gonna be internal processes, internal convictions that we have to fight really hard to take up in order to fight against fear. And fear's a sneaky enemy, right? It, it, it navigates its way into our mind, into our thinking, into our heart and emotions at times and in ways that we didn't expect. I mean, how many of you, as I have, uh, have found that you were afraid at moments you didn't expect to be afraid? You didn't know you were gonna be afraid and it sort of snuck its way in. And before you knew it, you, you sort of felt a little overwhelmed by it. So we're gonna look at the fear of God. We're gonna look at worshiping God and how that's a weapon to fight against fear. And when I say worshiping God there, I literally mean to sing out loud the praises of God. Philippians 4 is gonna call it rejoicing in the Lord, rejoicing in God, which has the connotation of not just worshiping him with my actions and my decisions, which is absolutely the way the scriptures paint worshiping God, but 
more specifically, actually singing praise to God as an act of worship. So that's the second, fearing God, worshiping God. And the third one we're gonna look at is making a habit of thinking about the cross. So it's a mental discipline of thinking about the cross of Jesus. Those are our three weapons, fearing God, worshiping God, making a habit of thinking about the cross of Jesus. So let's look at the first one. I asked you to go to Matthew chapter 10. We'll have those words on the screen for you as well. But let's read this short little excerpt from Matthew 10, verse 26 through 33. It says this. It says, so have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Let me pause there and say in verse 26 to give you a little context. Jesus has just been talking to his disciples. So believers, his followers, about not fearing persecution. He's actually said, look, they per- if they persecute me, they're gonna do the same to you. Uh, a servant's not greater than his master or her master. And so you can expect that. And he's, he's trying to motivate them. Serve me courageously in the midst of difficult circumstances when persecution comes. So that's the context. So the fear uh, or the reasons for fear that they could feel it are real and significant. And he's trying to equip them to be courageous when he knows the cause for fear will come. So he says, have no fear of them. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Now verse 27. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. That's a really sweet promise. Now look at what he does in verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who's in heaven. All right, so I already touched on the context here in these verses. But the next thing I wanna point out is that we immediately probably notice, again, Let me presume that you were with us last week. And if you weren't, it's okay. I'm gonna catch you up here. But we immediately notice if you were with us that the message here seems to be almost the exact opposite of what we heard in 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. So let me remind you there, what we learned is that God's love is a weapon against fear, specifically because God's love has freed us from punishment, freed us from hell. That's what 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 and 18 said when they said, hey, fear, perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And because of Christ, because of his sacrifice, we don't have to fear that punishment. In other words, what John was saying is, you don't have to be afraid that God is gonna send you to hell if you're in Christ Jesus. And that kind of love being poured out again and again into your life and into your heart frees you from other kinds of fear too. And I wanna talk about why that is in just a moment. But Let me just point out that we almost seem to have a contradiction here. It's not, but it could appear that way because in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus seems to say almost exactly the opposite, right? He's just said, you should actually fear God's ability and his justice would send you to hell. That's what he said here. And in fearing that, you'll find that, oddly enough, to be a weapon against fear. So the question then for us is, well, which is it? Is knowing God loves me and his has freed me from the consequence of my sin, freed me from the possibility of punishment and eternal, and eternal death. Is that the weapon that I take, take up against fear? Or is it what I find here in Matthew 10, that I take up the possibility of being sent to hell uh, so that I then would serve him faithfully, not deny him as verse 33 talked about, and therefore not 
be subject to hell. Which of those is the weapon? The answer is both because they're two sides of the same coin. Let me explain what I mean by that, right? So let's look at those two things together. Uh, One way sort of out of that contradiction, here's what some folks might do is they look at Matthew chapter 10. They might say, okay, here's how we sort of make sense of that first John truth and that Matthew chapter 10 truth. What we do then is we we take the fear being talked about here in Matthew 10 to be kind of like the fear of the Lord that's talked about in Proverbs. And when we see that in Proverbs, often what we're getting at is like God is so big and he's so grand. He's so other, so different from us, so morally pure. Everything about him is so uh, majestic that encountering him brings about awe and reverence. And that's how Proverbs often talks about the fear of the Lord. And so we could see this and go, well, that's the fear he's talking about. He's talking about having awe and reverence for the Lord, which of course is true. We should do that. But we have to ask the question, is that really what Matthew 10 is talking about? And I would, I would offer that the answer to that question is actually no, because the context, if we look at verse 28 again, what did he say? He actually said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And in verse 33, he said, if we deny him, In other words, if we make a habit or the regular proposition for us is that we would deny him or the regular reality of whenever there's a costliness to following Jesus, if we then deny him and that we shouldn't expect that we would count ourselves among those who have received the grace of Jesus at the cross. So the context seems to me to say, to speak to us, that the fear he's talking about is not just fear because of his otherness and grandeur and bigness, but rather it's actually fear based in God's ability, his power. He's the only one who can condemn to hell. And that's a fearful thought when we think about him and his ability to do that, but also that he would be justified to do so. Were it not for Christ, God is justified and right to send us into eternal separation from God the Father, from himself. So, in bringing those two things together. So then, well, what do we do with that? How do we think about that in light of those two, what almost seem to be opposite truths, but they're not opposites. As I said, they're two sides of the same coin and they both are a really helpful weapon. So here's what, let's go back to that first John 4 truth where we heard that knowing that God has freed us from eternal punishment, that he's freed us from hell, that that then, that demonstration of his love specifically helps us to fight against fear. Well, how does that work? Here's how that works. It works because hell is the thing ultimately worth being afraid of. That's kind of the picture the scriptures are painting. And John is painting when he talks about this. And if we don't have to be afraid of that, if that fear has been removed, then every other fear is a lesser expression of that ultimate fear. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean. So I have kids and often some of my fear that I feel is related to them. I was telling one of our staff, uh, Dan, the other day that it surprised me when I had kids. I, I have not been one who's been really prone to fear in my life in a lot of ways. And yet now I recognize that sometimes walking out of their room at night, I go in, I check on them. I can't go to sleep until I've checked on them. And sometimes I'll get in there and I make sure they're breathing and I'm listening. I have this kind of uh, idiosyncratic thing where I'm like, I need to hear them breathing before I walk out of their room. And I fully recognize, I have these moments sometimes where I think, what if something happened when I walked out of the room and I literally have to stop and I have to pray and I have to say, Lord, you love them more than I love them and you have them. I can't protect them the way you can protect them. I have to say that prayer to the Lord and to myself before I walk out. So there are these moments where I have found myself more prone to fear than I expected. So thinking about then my kids, let me give you an illustration of what I mean about sort of hell being this ultimate fear and then lesser fears being an expression of that ultimate fear. 
Ultimately, the reason I'm afraid of something happening to my kids is because that represents uh, possibly a loss of relationship with them where their lives taken. It represents a loss of thriving and flourishing in my family. It represents um, you know, a, a litany of different pain points that, that I recognize. It represents, um, what's the other one I wanted to point out here? Oh, it represents a loss of joy in my life. That's, that's the one I couldn't remember there that I wanted to recall. It would represent a loss on all these levels. Well, think about that. Why am I fearful of a loss of relationship? Why am I fearful of a loss of joy? Why am I fearful of all these different types of losses, uh, of, these, of these types of losses? The reason I'm afraid of them is because they are lesser expressions of the ultimate loss that hell represents. And so ultimately, all of our fear, this is the point I want to make, all of our fears are downstream from that ultimate fear, which is why the scriptures can say, if you've been freed from this consequence, then you don't have to fear any other lesser thing. Because the ultimate thing that you're really afraid of is this. That, that's the picture that the scriptures are painting. Now, not to lessen, of course, the, the experiences in, in our lives now that cause us to to fear. Those are real and they can be really fear inducing, but they're ultimately downstream from that. Now, that being the case, think about what we just saw in Matthew chapter 10. If all of our fears are really lesser expressions of that great ultimate fear, and we've been freed from that by what Jesus has done for us on the cross, then what Matthew, what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 10 is he's saying, you need to understand the reality of the consequence of hell much more deeply than you do because you can't fully appreciate the salvation that you have until you understand what you've been saved from, what you've been rescued from. And when you understand the great, um, the, the, the great difficulty, difficulty is not the right word, the magnitude of what hell represents, when you understand that, it causes the rescuing that's been done to shine all the greater, which is why, which is why fear of, God's ability to send us to hell and understanding what hell really represents is a weapon for fighting fear when it's paired for the believer, when it's paired with the understanding that we've been rescued from that. That alone is not a weapon, which is why verse 27, uh, or sorry, 29 and uh, 30 are so helpful for us in this text, right? Because what verse 29 through 31 say to us is this. Let's remind ourselves. It says this. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Are not one, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. So what has Jesus just done? It would seem odd. I mean, I don't know if it seems odd to you when you read it, for him to give this warning, you should fear God because he can send you to hell. And then the very next words out of his mouth are to say, you're of more value than a sparrow. The hairs on your head are counted. In other words, this great picture of his love and intimacy and closeness for you. So those verses, 29, 30, and 31, reflect back the exact same truth that 1 John 4, 17, and 18 teach us, which is that we are loved by God. And so what Jesus has done is he's paired those two things together. And he said, they're two sides of the same coin. Understand the reality of hell and its danger and its difficulty, but also know that I have loved you, believer, and freed you from the consequence of it so that those two things brought together become a really great weapon in terms of fighting fear. Now, um, if I had time, let me point you to two scriptures. Uh, Mark chapter nine, verse 43 and verse four, through 48, and then Matthew 25, verse 41 through 46. 
one of the practical implications of this, like how do I actually access this in order to be, to, to use it like day in, day out, is that you need to not let go of a biblical theology of hell. And that's a really popular thing to do right now because we, see, we find it to be unsavory, uh, maybe a little cumbersome in evangelizing, sharing our faith. But friends, can I just tell you, if this is true, and it is true, what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 10 is true, that this is a weapon against fear, you're actually only setting yourself up to experience more fear if you let go of a biblical understanding of hell and the reality of hell. Matthew chapter 25, I'm not gonna read the whole thing to you, but, but the reality is this. It paints this picture of hell as an eternal fire and it, and it is in opposition to eternal life which lasts forever and is qualitatively great. And so what I, what I want you to see is that instead of backing away from a biblical understanding of hell as a, as a way that you might think, well, that's gonna help eliminate fear because hell's this really scary thing, you should actually press into a biblical theology of hell and turn, to, and, turn and remember the greatness of the salvation that you have if you're in Christ Jesus. So let me say this then. Um, someone might ask then, this is an important question. Then we're gonna to move to the next two. And this text is harder than our other two. So I promise I'm lingering a little longer on this one than on the other two. But one additional thought here. Someone might ask the question, okay, um, if a believer is in, not really in danger of hell, and that is certainly true, no one who believes in Christ and is in Christ is in danger of hell. You're not in danger of losing your salvation. You cannot undo what God has done. He has brought about your salvation. John reminds us in his gospel that no one can snatch us out of the hands of Jesus. And so because we don't have to be afraid of that, we might ask, well, how does this really work? Is it just semantics? When you say, when Matthew chapter 10 tells us to fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, and he's talking to believers in that, but for someone who truly believes that's not really a, that's not really a danger, can we really be afraid of it then? And we need to deal with that for just a second. And here's the answer to that question, I think. The answer to that question is, it is possible to be afraid of things that are not really, uh, not really something you're going to experience. And here's, I'll give you an illustration of that. When I was in Chicago a few years ago, a man and I went for a visit. I, I lived there for a few years. And so we went back to visit. We did some of the touristy stuff because she'd not been there before. So we went to the Sears Tower, which is now called the Willis Tower. And they've got one of those glass boxes built out of the side of the building, like 128 stories up and for a few bucks, right? You can walk out on it. And you're standing on this sheet of glass now. I don't know the exact stories high, but it's like 120 something stories up in the air. So it represents this really scary idea. In fact, the, the appeal of everyone doing it is to feel that sort of rush, right? Of fear and adrenaline that you get uh, from that. But what occurred to me when I was doing that is that there's really no possibility that I'm gonna fall. Like I'm looking at this box. I know I've paid my money. I'm gonna step out on it. But in the moment that I went to step out on the box, I really felt fear. Why? Because of the sheer magnitude of the thing that I was partaking in. I recognized the magnitude and the absolute destructive nature of the fall that was represented that I was standing over. While at the same time, I knew that there was no possibility that I was gonna fall. It's the magnitude of that and the reality of it when you're face to face with it that can cause you to feel the reality of fear. And I think that's what Jesus is saying to us here. Utilize the reality of what hell actually is and what it represents to help you fight against fear when you pair it with the knowledge that if you're in Christ Jesus, you have been saved from that. Now, I'd be remiss. The last thing we gotta say about this text is this, is that those who deny, like if you find yourself with your actions or with your words, 
denying Christ, like verse 33 talks about. Every time there's a cost to following Jesus. If you know speaking up at your workplace would, would be costly and you choose to not speak up. So perhaps it's denying him through your silence. Maybe it's denying him with your words. Maybe it's denying him with your actions. But in all those things, friends, can I just, I'd be remiss if I tried to give the comfort to those of you who are in Christ Jesus that you cannot lose your salvation, but, but missed the reality of this text also that part of this is a warning for those who might perceive that they are in Christ, but, it, but make this pattern of denying him. And that's the pattern of your life. That when it's costly to follow him, what you choose is denial rather than association with Jesus, rather than to take him up and say, yes, I belong to him and he belongs to me. That if that's you, this text is meant to be a warning for you. And the reality of hell is meant to so sober you into an understanding uh, that you need to come to him for salvation. All right, one, one more thing there then. Let me just give you a really practical piece of advice. So what do you do when fear starts to rise? Whatever that, whatever that fear is based in, what do you do? How do you access this? Well, here's one way we can access this tool, this weapon that the scriptures give us here. We can begin by considering, taking into our minds in that moment, the ultimate fear of hell, the reality of what hell is. So going back to the scriptures, Mark chapter nine, Matthew chapter 25, and remembering the reality of hell and then remembering that compare it to the, the thing that's causing the fear that we feel right there in that moment. Ask that question. If this is what is ultimately to be feared, how does this thing that's causing me fear right now fit in the scope of that? And then don't stop there. Never stop just there. Always move into what we see in verses 29 through 31 of Matthew 10 and move into what we see in 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. Move into the reality that your God loves you. He's counted the hairs on your head. You're of more value to him than many sparrows. He loves you and has freed you from the condemnation that hell represents, the reality of what hell is. All right, so that may seem like that odd weapon, but I wanted to make sure we touched on that one because it is the, the opposite side and, and it deepens, it should deepen our understanding of the love of God when we understand what we've been freed from. So that's weapon number one, that we would fear God. Weapon number two is that we would worship God. So flip over to Philippians chapter four, uh, verse four through seven. And again, we'll put the words on the screen. This is one of the richest passages when it comes to thinking about the reality of fighting against fear. I love, I love this passage. Sorry, I'm talking and trying to flip at the same time. All right, here we go. So listen to this because we're gonna come back to this passage a lot in this series. There is... There, there are numerous weapons here that are mentioned. So we're gonna look at the first one. It's the very first one on the list. And it's as if Paul is telling us that this is important. So listen up. Like it's the first thing I'm gonna to talk to you about in this whole passage that is about fighting against fear and anxiety and experiencing the peace of God. The first thing he's gonna say is this, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. All right, so two things. I already touched on one. When we talk about rejoicing in the Lord, that's what it said, and it's repeated. It's the first thing that Paul tells us. 
Now, what I don't want you to do is see that there, there were all these things mentioned in the text, right? So it was the Lord is at hand. In other words, pondering the Lord's return and that that is coming, right, is a weapon against fear. Prayer is a weapon against fear. Having more mature believers speak into our lives, exercising self-control in our thought lives. These are all things that we're going to talk about because they're all here in the text. But the very first one that's mentioned is rejoicing in the Lord. Now, don't imagine just because it said to bring our prayers, our supplications to the Lord and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, that it's just saying there that prayer is the way that we guard our heart and mind or get to the peace of God. Rather, we should see that the peace of God, which passes all understanding, is the result of all the things that are mentioned in verses four all the way up to verse seven. Does that make sense, right? So we want you to see, I want you to see, that it's this whole list of things that are peace-inducing and fear-killing, right? Because they, they bring about faith. Now, when it says rejoice in the Lord, what Paul, what Paul is really saying there is he's saying, express out loud your love for Jesus. Rejoice in him. Find joy in all that Jesus is for you. Or maybe we can say it this way. Find joy for all, in all that God is for you in Christ Jesus. Because of who he is and what he's done, God has now become your friend. You are no longer his enemy. You are his son or his daughter. So many of these categories that we're supposed to take and rejoice then, rejoice in who he is for us in Christ Jesus. Now, how does that work? How does worshiping God, and again, I really mean singing praises to God. How does that take away fear? Well, here's how it does it. It takes our minds off temporary things and puts them on eternal things or on stable things. So things that are temporary or shifting, when we worship, our minds go to things that are, uh, when we worship God, our mind goes to the, the ultimate stable, steadfast thing, and that is God's character, God himself. So another illustration might be this. I'm not a dancer, but you can imagine dancers, I've been told they practice this thing called spotting, right? which is to say that as they're spinning, when they're doing like a lot of spins, they, they have a fixed point that they look at. And like, I'm looking at you now, right? And as they turn and they spin, they keep their eyes on that fixed point as long as possible while their body turns. And then as soon as they get to the part of the spin where they can no longer keep their eyes on that fixed point, they whip their head around to get it back on the fixed point so that while their body spins, their eyes remain as long as possible on the same fixed point. And what does that do for them? helps them not be dizzy, not get disoriented. They can continue to do the dance, right? That's a great illustration of how worshiping works. When we worship God, we set our eyes on a fixed point, the character of God. And when we set our eyes on that fixed point, we, we don't get dizzy or disoriented by the circumstances around us, by the spinning that's happening around us. So I wanna encourage you to think about it that way. So what does this look like? Let me give you a couple of, let me give you a couple of examples of, of how then to take up worship as a weapon. Uh, number one, put on music and worship him the second fear begins to rise, okay? So the second that thing that starts to cause fear to rise in your heart, whatever it is, a relational thing, it's a sickness thing, whatever it may be, when you find fear rising up in your heart, I would just encourage you, go to worship. Immediately find a way, whether it's putting on a song on your phone, whether it's just singing songs that are, that are buried in your heart, begin to worship God. And can I just say, friends, don't just listen to worship music, sing the words. Now, I know that may sound silly, like I'm getting into semantics there, but I just wanna encourage you, sing the words, because what does the scripture say here? It doesn't say, listen to other people rejoice in the Lord. It says what? 
Rejoice in the Lord. So in other words, what, the, what Paul is telling us is, you, if you want peace to guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus, you rejoice, sing out loud the praises of God. Declare his goodness. Say it out loud. Do not worry that your heart does not match what your words are saying in that moment. Say to God, I want my heart to match this. I want my heart to match it. And then if I could say this too, as you're singing, as you're worshiping, there's lots of songs. It's a very common theme right now to sing a lot of songs about fear and how God has overcome fear. And that's good. Those are, those are fine songs. But could I just encourage you better than those songs, better than songs about how he overcomes fear. Definitely sprinkle those in, have those in there, but sing songs about the greatness of God. Sing songs about the bigness of God, about his power and his love and his greatness. Just don't allow your singing and your worshiping to be caught up in how you need deliverance from a circumstance. That's, that's good. It's good to do that. The Psalms give us that example, but do more. Sing to God about him. Tell him how great he is. That's the fixed point. He's the fixed point. So sing to him about himself. He treasures that from you. As you do it, you'll find that that fixed point, I just, I challenge you, try it, do it, take it up. And as you do, just find that your, your mind is gonna be on a fixed reality that is good. And what a weapon that will be. Uh, last one I'll give you. Um, well, I'll say this, fill your days with praises before the cause of fear comes too. Don't just wait until you feel fearful and then begin to worship. Just fill your day with worship. If you don't have a pattern in your life, friend, can I just encourage you, if you don't have a pattern in your life where you begin the day with worship, you end the day with worship, and there's worship sprinkled throughout the day, but maybe it's listening to it in your car, maybe it's making sure that there is worship you know, in the background of your work if you're able to do it that way, but just make sure that there are patterns of worship in your week, rhythms of that, and then rhythms of worship in your day. And, and with that, one more rhythm I'll encourage you is remember how the Lord taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So when you go to prayer, and we're gonna talk about prayer in, in some weeks to come, but when you go to prayer, don't begin asking, making requests before you take, even if it's just a sentence or two to worship him, to say, hallowed be your name. Just use that pattern. I mean, Jesus gave it to us, so let's take advantage of it. Let's follow it, let's obey it. So friends, Fill, fill your prayers with worship first before you begin to make those requests. And of course, those requests are good. The Father delights to get those requests from us. He receives them with, as, as a loving Father would, right? But begin with worship. So that's just a couple of practical pieces. If you take those up, those, if you take up that weapon of worship, I think you'll find it helpful. And then uh, last one, last weapon we're gonna look at today, our third one, is thinking about the cross regularly. Now, again, I said that this is a sort of a mental discipline thing. So let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 through 18. This will be our shortest point. So towards the end of your scriptures, towards the end of your Bible, we find 1 Peter. And 1 Peter says this in chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, we haven't come to the cross yet. It's gonna be the next verse, but let me just say, Context so far, what we've seen there is Peter is referring again to persecution. 
just like Jesus was in Matthew chapter 10. And he's saying, when you're encountering that, don't make the mistake of thinking, well, um, I'll, I'll return evil for evil. When evil's done to me, I'll return evil. He says, then you'd invite punishment on yourself and it would be justified because you've done something wrong. Rather, be righteous. No matter what, be righteous. Do what's right. And then if you suffer for that, you will be richly rewarded and even it will have a benefit for the kingdom. And so throughout this context, then he's giving all these weapons. That's a real fear, right? A reality. And he's giving all these again, just like Philippians 4. This is like a tour de force of weapons to fight against fear. So this is another text we're gonna come back to numerous times in this series. But in verse 18, the capstone of everything that he said is this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So in other words, here's what Peter's done. After, after all these references to uh, fear-inducing persecution, difficulty that, that's come, and all these different ways to fight it, he, he treats as the capstone, the final sort of summation of that, to remember Christ's sufferings, to remember his cross. How does that help us fight against fear? Remembering the cross of our Lord, how does it help us fight against fear? Well, his argument is kind of laid out for us here when he says, he suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So here's what he just told us. He's trying to help you see how perfectly effective the cross of Jesus is. That no matter how long you look at it, no matter how long you consider it, you will never find an imperfection in it. You know how, like, if you do any handiwork, like when I painted my kids' bedrooms and I think, I mean, I did, I put the tape down and I used all these tools to try and make sure I didn't get any of the, like the blue paint on the white spots and vice versa. And I was meticulous. And yet, the more I look at the room, don't you, like, you find your mistakes, right? Over time, you look at it long enough, no matter how good a job you did, you're like, oh, I see that this spot I didn't quite cover it up. Or I see that I got a little bit of this over there. We all do that with our handiwork. Jesus's cross is not like that. When we look at it, we will only ever find perfect effectiveness. It is without flaw as a weapon against fear and as a saving instrument for us in our lives. And so what he's saying is Jesus, Jesus died once for sins. In other words, he didn't need to keep repeating that sacrifice. It was a one-time sacrifice because it was so sufficient. That's the first thing he's showing. It's so sufficient, doesn't have to happen numerous times. The second thing he wants to show us is that it's a righteous being dying for unrighteous beings, right? A righteous one dying for unrighteous ones. In other words, he's pointing out that no one else but him could do this. And it's so powerful and effective, this cross, his sufferings are so powerful and effective. They don't just have an impact for him. They have an impact on all these unrighteous ones. That's you and that's me. So what Peter's arguing is, if you wanna get rid of fear, if you wanna, and, and there's real cause for it, then remember, think about it ponder, go back to again and again the cross of Jesus because you will only ever find in it perfection. You will never find any flaw in his cross. And so when we consider that, when we ponder that, the merits of the cross, his merits on the cross, what he's done, it helps drive fear away. So let, let me just give you then one piece of advice practically and then we're, we're, we'll close up shop. What does that look like practically? It looks like this. It looks like memorizing as many verses as you can get your hands on that are about the cross so that they are at hand, so that they're ready. The second fear starts to peek its head up, what do you do? You pull up that weapon of, of the memorized word of God buried in your heart specifically about the cross of Jesus. So let me give you a couple. You can jot these down. First Peter 3.18, the text we just looked at. 
1 Corinthians 1.18. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And then my absolute favorite, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Listen to this, just listen to this. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. If you want to put fear away, ponder the cross of Jesus, this perfect weapon against fear, and you will find yourself growing in steadfastness and in courage because the cross will remind you what it has done for you. Kind of what we talked about then again at the beginning when we talk about fearing God and remembering what he's done because of his love for us. So friends, remember again what we said at the very beginning, that fear is the enemy of God-glorifying faith. And we so want for you to glorify God by being filled with faith and chasing away fear. And as it comes, we hope that you'll, you will join all of us who have to do this, which is to take, all of us have to take up the weapons that God has made available to us. So let's, let's be intent on learning what those weapons are. All right, let me pray for us and we'll worship together again before we close our time together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for my people sitting in their homes today, wherever they may be. I pray that you would begin to take these tools, these weapons that we've talked about today and begin to cause it to dawn in their minds and in their hearts how these will um, be useful to them in their fight against fear, whatever the cause of their fear may be. In this season or the next or 20 years from now, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would fill them with faith, fill them with gladness, fill them with joy. And may they take up all the weapons that you have made available to them. May we take up all the weapons you made available to us. We wanna do that now as we, as we turn to worshiping you. In our homes, we wanna worship you now. We wanna rejoice in you as Philippians 4 tells us to, so that we might, so that we might grow in faith and see fear shrink back. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.